and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter at the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, good. Well, welcome back to Grace Church. Um, uh, as you know, we've been studying through Exodus for the last, I don't know, we've lost count of weeks, it doesn't really matter. Um, so we're going to get through Exodus today. Today will be the final sermon. Um, and so I'm glad you're here with us, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Exodus began with Israel building store cities for Pharaoh, but it ends with freed Israel building a tabernacle for God. Just to, just to recall the journey, they have come from muddy brick pits of Egyptian royalty to the priestly construction of God's royal palace. As we look back at the pages of Exodus, this is one of my favorite parts of preaching through the Bible, is I get to look back on these chapters and I remember just the, the overall, the clear message of what the pages of Exodus tell us. God is a God of glory. God is a God of redemption. God is our Redeemer. And to Him alone belongs the glory for the amazing transformation that we have seen in the Israelites. Every step of the way, it was His grace and His mercy that led them out of bondage and into His blessing. In Exodus chapter 1 through 15, God saw, God heard, and God knew about His people's affliction under the Egyptian taskmasters. And Israel's God came down to rescue them. And through a great power play, a great display of power through plagues, through the Passover, and through the Red Sea redemption, God proved to Egypt and to all the earth that there is one God, and He is Yahweh. Hopi is not God. Osiris is not God. Ra is not God. Pharaoh is not God. And neither are any of the other gods on the pantheon. There is one God and he is God above all. And there is no one like him. Which leads us to the Red Sea as the Red Sea settled. I'm going to get to go there in just a week and a half. As the Red Sea settled on the drowned army of Pharaoh's soldiers. The Hebrews sang, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Egypt was crushed and Israel was saved from Pharaoh's tyranny. And yet there was more to be done. We know that after Exodus 15, the story doesn't end there. In fact, it just begins. Israel had been brought out of Egypt, but Egypt had not been brought out of Israel. They were no longer slaves to Pharaoh, but they were still slaves to their own sin. Almost immediately after being brought out of Egypt, they begin to murmur, not enough bread, not good enough bread, not good enough meat, not sweet enough water. It was constant murmuring and grumbling and thanklessness. They went so far to even say that God had brought them out of Egypt to starve them to death in the wilderness. And yet God in His grace and His mercy continued to provide for them both day and night. 
They came to the foot of Mount Sinai where they saw God's glory descend and heard His thunderous voice and saw His fiery presence. And they received the law from the mouth of God Himself booming out over them. And yet even with all of that, they rebelled by building a golden calf, by building an Egyptian god, by turning their hearts back to Egypt, rejecting God's redemption. Now this proves, I think, in Exodus, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest hindrance keeping Israel out of the presence of God? I hate to tell you Charlton Heston was wrong. It was not Egypt. The greatest hindrance keeping God's people out of God's presence was their own sin. Because even after being brought out of Egypt... That's relatively easy for God to defeat an Egyptian pantheon of gods. I mean, he's the God of creation. It's, it's nothing for God to speak and turn the Nile into blood. That's nothing. That's peanuts compared to a holy God overcoming the sinfulness of his people so he doesn't burn them up with his presence. The greatest hindrance keeping them out is their own rebellious nature. So they build this golden calf. They're immediately threatened with complete destruction. But Moses goes as a good mediator does, and he pleads for God's mercy. He requested to see God's glory, and God granted it, declaring his name, that he is the God who is gracious to forgive sin, and yet also the God who is just to punish iniquity. And once again, God's glory is seen as he overcomes yet another obstacle, keeping his people from his presence. Now we have this final section. Exodus comes to a victorious conclusion. Both Pharaoh and Israel's golden calf idolatry have been overturned. The covenant has been restored. Moses has come back down from the mountain with new tablets of stone, his face reflecting the afterglow of God's glory. And they're ready to begin to build the tent where they will experience God's glory and God's goodness. Not in front of them, not around them, not just behind them, but in their midst, right in the middle of their camp. The tabernacle will serve as a reminder that God is God and they are his people. So as we approach these final five chapters, here's what I hope you'll see. Because we make every every chance that we can in a sermon, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New, New Testament, we want people to see two things. Number one, every text points to Jesus. Number two, every text applies to the church. So here's what we're going to see. When God's people build God's house in God's way, the result is God's glory dwelling in the midst of his people. And we're going to consider how all that happens, how Exodus comes to a fitting conclusion while at the same time pointing us and pressing us forward to Christ and to his church. So we're going to look at three things. We will look at the goal of Exodus. We'll look at Israel's work for God. And then finally, we're going to look at the result of Israel's tabernacle building. And then we'll come back around to tie all these things together in the gospel. Let's begin in Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 3. The last command that God gave Moses in chapters 25 through 31, just before the golden calf incident, was to give them instructions that Israel must keep his Sabbaths. That was absolutely what they were to do. That was primary above everything, was to keep the Sabbaths 
as a sign of their special relationship with God. Now, interestingly, as we loop back around from 25 to 31 to chapter 35 to 40, it's the first command. So it's the last command before the golden calf incident. It's the first command after the golden calf incident, which shows that this is high priority. This is a big command that they are not to break. Here's what Moses says. These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done. But on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. This command is serving as a reminder of what the ultimate goal is. God did not just simply deliver Israel. It wasn't just that he wanted to defeat their enemies and leave it done. God delivered Israel for the purpose of dwelling with them. God delivered Israel for the purpose of Sabbathing with them. They were saved to Sabbath, saved to rest with God. Everything that had happened in Exodus is meant to climax in this Sabbath rest with God to where they are enjoying their relationship with God, recalling back his redemptive work in Exodus. Now, just I think about that for a moment. We're about to see all this work happen in the tabernacle. The people are about to become busy little ants, you know, just going everywhere, contributing and working and overlaying wood with gold and all this, all this work they're going to do. And yet, what is the primary goal of it all? To rest with God. My friends, as modern Christians... We get preoccupied with a lot of churchy things, don't we? A lot of ministry type ideas, and we, we go about uh, tasks, right? Ministerial tasks. We try to build systems. We create projects. We have work days. We have all these things that are really good and churchy. And those things are great. God has called us to do those things, but not to do those things in and of themselves. We do those things for a reason. We work for the purpose of helping people find rest in God. We work to help people like Peggy cease from their labor and find rest in Jesus Christ to stop working for righteousness, to stop working for comfort, to stop working for peace and to cease to desist and realize that that rest can come in no one else but Jesus Christ. The building is great. The decorations are great. The coffee tastes somewhat great. (laughs) But the reality of it all is that everything we do must be bent and focused with helping people find rest in Jesus. Otherwise, our work for God is not really work for God. If we build buildings... That's great. If we have all kinds of programs and have something on every night of the week, great, fine, whatever. But the purpose of all of these things, the purpose of who we are as a church, is not so that tasks and accomplishments get done so we can check mark off our to-do list. The work of the church is done so that people will find that Jesus is the Sabbath. That Jesus is rest. That Jesus is the one who says, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and you will find rest. That's why we work. 
That's why we labor. That's why we engage in all of this ministry and all of these tasks is so that we can tell people that there is rest with God. Now, how do we rest with God? We've talked about this before. We rest with God by worshiping Jesus, by trusting in him, by presenting him to people so that they understand that he is the only one who can help them find peace. Now, moving into the rest of chapter 35, whereas most of Exodus shows Israel at its worst, these last five chapters of Exodus show Israel at its best. For most of Israel's wilderness journey, they have been grumbling against God, doing what God said not to do. And yet in this concluding section, we find Israel doing what they should have been doing all along, joyfully, willingly obeying God, going about his commands, doing things as he said. This is what Israel was meant to be. If you want to see a perfect picture of how Israel was to do daily life, just go to chapters 35 through 40, and you see Israel in the way that they were meant to live. Now, I think three things can be gained from looking at their work. First tabernacle building was everyone's labor, was everyone's work. Now, to be sure, God had specifically tasked Bezalel and Oholiab to oversee the work and making sure that everything was done in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded. However, God's call for contribution was given not to just a few Israelites, but to every Israelite. Whoever, this is what it says in chapter 35, verse 7, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. The words every, everyone, and all are used at least 10 times in these nine little verses. The repetition of the word, I think, shows that everyone was involved in the work, not just a select few people. Everyone whose heart stirred uh, to give up their treasures, both men and women, it's not even one gender, it's both men and women contributed, contributing gold and gifts and skill. Everyone who had silver gave it. Everyone who had acacia wood gave it. Everyone who could skillfully spin and work the fabric into the tabernacle curtains did so. Verse 29 says it powerfully. All the men and women of uh, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose hearts moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. It's every Israelite's work at this point. And not just their, their work, but their willing work. Every contribution from tithing gold to sitting down and working very fine embroidery into the, the fabric of the, of the curtain was done as a free will offering. No guilt trips, no one coming up here going, guys, we really need to do this work. Please, we're pleading with you. We're getting down on, your, on our knees. Please do the needlework. Somebody's got to do the needlework. No, no guilt trips, no shaming. People simply gave because they wanted to. My friends, God calls us to do the same. In building up God's house, the church, Every believer is called to contribute. Now, before you think this is about to be a talk on giving money, it's not. That might be a small part of it. Okay, but if everyone gave money to this church and no one did anything, we're still unfaithful. Okay, so I just want to be very clear about that before we even begin this little section. God has given you gifts. God in his miraculous 
holy work has made it so that there are people who are good administrators, good leaders, good teachers, good servants, hospitable people. God has moved us to be a gifted people. God does not call a select few to do the work of ministry. Ministry is not for ministers alone. Why? Because the gospel clearly says in Ephesians that the building up of the body of Christ is whose work? It's the saints. It's the saints, not ordained pastors, not just seminarians. It's the work of Christians, every believer contributing. Whether it be tithing, serving in the children's ministry, volunteering at first work, ho- uh, first look, hosting in a life group, teaching in the youth ministry, whatever we do must be a free will offering to the Lord, not given for our glory, but given to the glory of the God who is saved. I, I, I just want to, as bizarre as this would seem, just imagine being back in that time, do you see any Israelites kicking it back, going, oh yeah, let everybody else do it? That'd be bizarre, right? I mean, those, that would be a very odd thing to think about this time. Is there any Israelite kicking back on a rock, uh, sipping a margarita on Cinco de Mayo, and just realizing everybody else is doing the work, this is my day off? Do we see anyone doing that? It would be very bizarre if they were. And yet we Christians, we have even more than what they have. We've been given even greater grace than what they have. And the sad reality is, churches all over America, there are Christians kicking back. Oh yeah, let them do the work. Let's pay someone. They've got kids, let them do it. My friends, I don't mean to guilt you, but I don't mind if I do. Um... The reality is for us to be a people of God who are living in the way that God has tended, every believer needs to understand that they are to contribute in some way. Your gifts, your skills, your ability, all of those coming together to build God's house, which, by the way, is not the building. It's the people that you see here sitting with you to build up one another, to encourage, to sharpen, to sanctify, to do all these things, to help one another, to further your walk with the Lord. That's your work, not just the elders' work. To be a faithful people, we must contribute to the work of the gospel together. Second, the people built the tabernacle as God had commanded. Exodus chapter 36 verse 1 says, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Now you see that phrase over and over again, Sultan, all the way through these four chapters, chapter 36 to 40, all that the Lord has commanded. And we're not, we're not going to go in detail through these four chapters because they're almost a word-for-word repetition of everything that we saw in chapters 25 through 31. You know what that tells us? The way God said it was to be done is the way they did it. That's what the point of that word-for-word repetition is. There's some slight, subtle changes, but not in the way that they carried it out. Not in the way that they made it. They made the tabernacle with 10 curtains, not 11 And they made it a fine twine linen, not some scrap garbage cloth. 
They wove cherubim into it, not just these little images of, hey, we don't like cherubim, we want flowers. Okay? The, the curtains were 28 cubits long, just as God said that they should. They coupled the curtains together, made loops of blue and 50 clasps of gold so that the tabernacle held together as a single whole. They made the frames of acacia wood. The screen was embroidered with needlework. The ark was made hollow on the inside and overlaid with gold. The table was two cubits long and a cubit in breadth and a cubit and a half high, not three cubits high, a cubit and a half high. The lampstand was built with six branches going out its side. The altar of incense was exactly a cubit long, two cubits high. The bronze altar was precisely five cubits in length. And then they made the bronze basin and the courtyard fences with 20 pillars and 20 bases. It's a lot of details. But the reality is, is whatever God put into his blueprint, blueprint into his pattern is what was reflected in what they made. They did it exactly down to the cubit, how God had commanded. In chapter 39, the priestly garments were made. And again, you see this phrase, as the Lord had commanded. It's found 10 times in this one chapter alone. Once again, Israel's craftsmen take the greatest caution. They don't want even one stone on the priestly vestment to be out of place. Not one stitch out of the way that God had said that it was to be done. Realizing that every piece of the tabernacle, every furniture, every piece of garment was given for some kind of symbolism of His grace, His presence, and His holiness. And so they took the greatest caution. Now, the emphasis of these chapters could not be made even be made clear. It's not up to the people of God to make substitutions. It's not up to the people of God to make alterations, alterations or modifications. Cubit for cubit, God's people build God's place in God's way. As he commanded. Third, the people gave until they had to be restrained. Look at verses uh, three through seven. In chapter 36. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that the cra- all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work and more. This is something that has never happened in the history of the church. No, 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 we don't need you to sign up for children's ministry. We have plenty. No, 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 don't, don't worry about money. We've got it all. We've got it more than, it's more than enough to cover all the needs. Nope, don't worry about being ushers. Don't worry about being greeters. we got more than enough people to be hospitable and kind and welcoming when they come in. This has never happened in the history of the church. When Moses called for contribution, everyone came, everyone brought, and they kept giving, and they kept contributing. They kept sewing. More ladies came up with their needlework. More men came up with their hammers. More people came with gold and silver. And eventually the workers are just like, we, we can't do it. We got more than enough for 50 arcs, 20 tabernacles. We don't need any more. Stop them. So the people had to be restrained, actually held back 
listen, I know you want to give it. You can't leave it here. Pick up the gold and go home. I'm glad somebody thinks I have a sense of humor. Now, this isn't, this isn't too surprising, though, or it shouldn't be. Not surprising to us in our context because we've never seen anything like this. But this shouldn't be too surprising because they had seen everything that had transpired. They, had, they, they remembered how they rebelled against God. They had at one point used that gold to build an idol, by the way. They had heard the threat of God destroying them and wiping them off the face of the earth. They had seen how the wages of their sin brought about the death of 3,000 men. They had heard the disastrous word when God said, I will not go with you. Now, just by, by way of analogy, imagine Israel as a wife who's been caught in the moment of the act of adultery by her husband. She allowed herself to be swept away in a moment of lust and passion from some old boyfriend who swept her off her feet and wooed her. And all of a sudden, here she's standing there, naked and ashamed, caught in the very act as her beloved husband is standing in shock. Now, what would you expect the husband to do? Well, it seems normal that he would be angry, right? It seems normal that he would feel betrayed and broken, right? Maybe even the words divorce come out of his mouth. Nobody would be surprised by that, right? Seeing, seeing the spouse in the bed of another person, that would naturally bring anger. Well, the woman all of a sudden just rushes in on her, what she's traded. She's traded this person. She's traded her beloved, the one who has sacrificed for her, loved her, the one who has cared for her. And all of a sudden he's walking out the door and she's in bed with some guy that doesn't even care about her. So she chases after him, falls on knees. Please don't leave me. Please forgive me. I was wrong. And she's pleading and she's weeping and she's moaning over the weight of what she has done. Now just place yourself in that moment. The husband's standing there. What's he going to do? The wife is broken and weeping and just pouring and drenched with tears, realizing that she's thrown it away. And then come the sweet words. I love you. I'll forgive you. And we'll work this out. Can you imagine what kind of joy might happen after hearing that? You know, I've, I've actually seen this at, in real life where a husband had an affair on his wife or the wife had an affair on the husband and there was just a point in time that there's this tension that the relationship was going to be broken and shattered and it was over, right? Kids were going to just be raised in two separate households. I mean, it was just mass chaos. And the person who had committed the affair was just absolutely in shattered guilt. And they should have been. And yet to see reconciliation come and sweep over in grace. That's exactly what happened to Israel. It's no mistake that when God talks about sin for Israel, he talks about it as adultery. And yet, like a loving husband does for an undeserving, adulterous wife, he swept her up off her feet and said, I love you. I forgive you. I'm not leaving. 
Now, if I'm an Israelite at that moment and I realize that I was one of the ones that was bowing down and sacrificing to the golden calf, I'm emptying out pockets. Here's my hands. Use them. Here's my mouth. Let me sing while y'all are working. Let me do something. Not to pay God back, but because he's worthy of praise. I can't compensate God for grace. But I can give my gratitude. My friends, this is just a normal response to God's amazing grace. When God's people are like, take me, take my hands, take my feet, take my mouth, send me. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable. It doesn't matter how much it's going to break the bank. It doesn't matter how it's outside of my purview of what I want to do. God has saved me. And he has given me far more than I could ever give him. That's what we see happening in Exodus. My friends, just to paint the picture, we we have been given way more than they have. They have partial restoration with God. We have full reconciliation in Jesus Christ. How much more should this be our attitude? You see a brother or sister broken and crying right next to you? My friends, you don't have the room to be able to say, "Ah, that's not my problem. My friends, as, as someone who's felt the gospel, there should be nothing outside of our purview of what we would be willing to do to praise God for the worship. Again, not to pay him back. You can't. You can't. And if you try to pay him back, you've never actually received it in the first place. You cannot pay God back for his grace, but you can give him a a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanks that sees everything you do as gratitude for God's amazing kindness in your life. That's why I love seeing Peggy teach the, the students. She taught them this this morning in Sunday school class. Here's Peggy forgiven. Grace swept over alcoholism, swept over drugs, and swept over all these dark secrets, secrets, swept over even an abortion. And she's going to stand in gratitude and proclaim the gospel to children. Of course. That's what we're called to do as a church. My friends, when people call you to serve, when we ask you to be greeters or ushers or to serve in the children's ministry, we're not doing it to guilt you into some kind of service. We're trying to give you an opportunity to be grateful for the grace that God has given you. Can you imagine? And there's no one complaining. There's no one griping and moaning at this moment. Oh, they need more gold. There's no one doing that. Because they realize that God is worth it. They realize that the redemption they have experienced is worth every act of gratitude. And yet we grumble and moan when people talk too much about serving. It's not the way God's people are to respond. I don't even know where I am in my notes anymore. The section of Israel's tabernacle building work concludes in the Exodus 39. Verses 42 through 43, it says this, According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so that the people of Israel had done 
all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. This is a very repetitious sentence. As the Lord had commanded them, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. The work was finished. It was completed. It was done exactly in the way that God had said it should be done. And as a result, they were blessed, reminding them that God had promised Israel that if they obeyed him, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed him, they would be cursed. Exodus 32 and 39 shows two different paths of the life of God's people. We can, number one, build the golden calf in our way in disobedience to God. We can have our own idols in our lives. We can keep building idols and following after them and receive God's disfavor and God's displeasure. Or we can build a house in his name in obedience to him, which leads to blessing. The same decision that Israel had to make in Exodus 32 and Exodus 39 faces us today as a church, as Grace Church, moving on into the future. Will we build golden calves or will we build a house for God? The people's work for the tabernacle was done, but Moses's wasn't. God told them that on the first day of the month uh, that he is to erect the tabernacle. Now, just very briefly to mention why that's significance, that means that the tabernacle is going to be done just in time for the one year anniversary since the Passover redemption. Again, reminding them that they had been delivered to dwell, delivered to enjoy God's presence. And so on the one year anniversary that Passover is happening, they have God's glory in the tabernacle right there with them. An amazing affirmation of what God had done. And then in verses uh, 3 through 15 of chapter 40, Moses, uh, God gives Moses detailed instructions for how he's to set up the tabernacle, consecrate it, anoint it. And again, we see the phrase, and he did everything as the Lord commanded him. Moses himself didn't have the ability to redesign, to refashion. To, he had to follow the instructions, right? Just like, just like uh, he told the people of Israel, you have to follow the instructions. Guess what? Moses is not above that. In our day and age, we think that there's some who must obey God, and there's others who don't have to be. Oh, yeah, pastors, they have to meet a standard, but the rest of the church does not. That's not true. God calls all people to obedience and to do things his way. What's good for the pastor is good for the people. What's good for Israel was good for Moses. Israel had to build it in God's way. Moses had to build it in God's way. That's the reality of following God and being God's people. That which the people obediently built, Moses obediently assembled. And so Moses finished the work. So the house is complete and it's ready for occupancy. So let's look at the result of their work. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 35, says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, this whole time we've been in Exodus, we've been asking, how is it that a holy God whose presence is like white hot fire, how is it that this holy God can set up his presence with a sinful people? Right? We, we really kind of have a burning bush type problem here. How can fire and a bush go together so that the bush is not burned? Well, that problem is resolved here in Exodus 40 as God's fiery presence descends on the tabernacle and God's people are not consumed. Now, this is both a grace and a reward. God's descending glory is a grace. As we've already said, they didn't deserve it. 
Without God's grace, they wouldn't even made it out of the golden calf incident. They'd all been dead in the desert. But God's glory descending on the tabernacle was God's gracious display that his presence among them was not based on merit, but on mercy. But it's also a reward. A reward. Imagine if they had changed anything. If they had decided they weren't going to build it in God's way. It's likely that God's glory would not have descended. When God's glory descends on the tabernacle, we see it as a massive affirmation that God's people had done exactly as they should have. And yet it's also a massive affirmation and reminder that God is a God of grace and we do not have his presence because of what we have done. He is a God of grace. Now, story's over, right? Close the book. We don't even need the rest of the Bible. We might as well just make this our last Sunday, right? Let's turn the building into a party building and we'll have donuts every Sunday. We might even put up a little jacuzzi here where the pulpit used to go, right? We're all done. Well, the end of Exodus doesn't lend to that. In fact, it gives two final verses, which says this. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Wait a second, they're what? Their journeys. They're not, they've not reached their destination yet. It's just simply saying, hey, yeah, there's more to come. And just so you know, God's decided to go ahead and go with them, but they've not reached their final destination yet. If this is the end of a book, it's a poor resolution to the end of a book. We want to know how they get there. How do they reach their destination? If you read the rest of the Old Testament, there's more sin. There are more golden calves. There are more murmurings and groanings. There are more Pharaoh-type enemies. And there's more grace. And it all leads up to a final resolution, a perfect resolution. You see, as much as Israel had been given, they had not yet attained the Sabbath rest that God had planned for them. They had not yet attained that final destination of dwelling with God in his unveiled presence, untabernacled, right? So to where the curtains and the veils come down. For that resolution... We can't stay in Exodus. We have to go outside of the book of Exodus because it's a resolution that is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. Through him, God provided a second, greater Exodus in which his people were delivered not from slavery to a human Pharaoh, but from spiritual slavery to sin and Satan. My friends, if you are sitting here today, you either are because you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus or have been because you have put your faith in Jesus, slaves to sin. Every single person. This is one thing we have in common. We may not like the same kind of music. You and I might not like the same color. But the reality is we have been slaves to sin. But Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And he has redeemed us with the precious blood, not of silver and gold, but blood like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. My friends, do you realize that the gospel message is that the perfect son of God died for your sin? Your sin's incredibly bad. Your sin rivals the golden calf incident. It's not any better 
In some ways, it's worse because we know the truth. We know who Jesus is. My friends, our sin is incredibly bad, and yet God's grace is better. Jesus was blotted out by God's wrath so that our names could be written in God's book. Jesus died to give life, to tear open the veil that kept us out of God's presence. We don't go in and out of a tent anymore. We go into Christ and we stay in Christ. He was buried and he rose again and became the first fruit of resurrection life, foreshadowing what he wants to do for all of us on the final day. And one day, God will send his massive temple city, the New Jerusalem, descending, just like the cloud, descending on a new heaven and new earth where we will dwell with God forever. And God himself will say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be their God and they will be his people. Exodus then gives us hope now. Not only have we been delivered from sin, but we will soon be delivered from death itself. And we will see the glory of the God of Exodus and not just his glory. We'll see God himself. My friends, you may be going through a number of things in this room. There are some of you who have a number of secrets. God sees, God hears, God knows, and he is the God who redeems. That's the message. You might die. Your loved ones might die. You might get sick. Your bank account might run empty. You might carry guilt that you can't even speak of without crying. And yet, we have proof that God is a God of Exodus who brings us out of all of those things, and into his amazing grace in Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, concluding our study, how does this apply to the modern church? How does this apply to us as Grace Church? Well, we've already seen Exodus 35 through 40 teaches us that when God's people build God's house in God's way, the result is God's glory in their midst. 1 Timothy 3.15 calls us the house of God. We're we're a church. So we're the household of God. Now my question is, is in a world filled with golden calf construction, will we be a place that we are building up God's house in God's way? There's not a lot of lights and shiny things here, I hope you've noticed, because we're not really about that. Worship might not have felt like a concert, because we're not really about that either. The coffee is subpar. I can make a better one with my V60. It's kind of a big sore spot in our life here. The chairs aren't always that comfortable, though they might get a little more comfortable in a couple weeks when we have brand new chairs and a a brand new renovated sanctuary. We'll shine a little bit better then, but still not what we're about. If you come to Grace Church, I hope you realize that what we're about is to see God's gospel preached because that is how God builds his house. We're here to worship Jesus, not ourselves. We're here to speak about Christ. We're not here to highlight the sins of others. We're here to highlight the glory of God and the Son of God who died to pay for those sins. So as a church, as we're nearing the end of Exodus, we see this amazing conclusion of God's glory descending on the tabernacle. I hope that's what we want for our church. 
That when people come in, when people drive by, when people see us, when people talk about the testimony and the things that we say, the things that we post on Facebook, the the way that we do life together, the way they see us show up together in life group, my hope is that they will see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Because this church must be a church who builds God's house in God's way to make God's glory known to the nations. And may all the nations know that the God of the Exodus, who has given us an even greater Exodus in Jesus Christ, that he will reign forever and ever with no rival. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, your gospel saturates the message of Exodus. And as we have concluded today, God, I pray that you will uh, be with us, Lord, as we continue to contemplate how we can apply the Exodus salvation you have given us. Lord God, I pray that you will uh, help us, Father, as we live to be your people doing things your way. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.